Elisha ben Shaphat from Evel Melocha was a prophet whose story is told in great detail in the book of Kings, mostly at the beginning of Kings 2. In the Christian Bible, it's split into two. And so we've also began to split into two, but in Kings 2. So according to our traditions, Elisha was a prophet and leader of Israel who died around the year 651. So going back more than 2,600 years ago. He was the main disciple of perhaps a more famous prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi, or Elijah the prophet. And um, he became the leader of Israel um, and the main prophet of Israel after Eliyahu, after Elijah. And he's best known for the many miracles that he performed during what could have been a very challenging time for Israel. Um, He was a spiritual leader of Israel for a very long time. He was a spiritual leader for 60 years. So we know nothing about Elisha's birth or early life. We know nothing about it. The first we hear of Elisha is in the book of Malachi, in the book of Kings, it tells us that Eliyahu and Avi Elijah the prophet had a vision at Chorev, or Mount Sinai, where God gave him a number of instructions. And one of the instructions that God gave Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah at Mount Sinai, was to anoint Elisha ben Shaphat as his successor, as the prophet and spiritual leader of Israel after Eliyahu Hanavi, after Elijah is gone. So Elijah goes, um, he goes to Evel Mechola, which was where Elisha lived, and he finds Elisha plowing his field. Um, the Midrash says Elisha was actually from a very wealthy family, but um, would work, was a hard worker and plowed the field together with other workers. And um, Eliel sees him and he throws his cloak over Elisha. Elisha gets that as a message. Eliel had a special cloak, a leadership cloak um, that signified his role as a leader. And so Eliel gets the mes- Elisha gets the message and he leaves the cattle, runs after Eliyahu, and he um, says, I just want to say goodbye to my father and mother, and then I will come join you. And so Elisha, Eliyahu granted him, said, go, go say goodbye to your parents. And so he went back, he took the cattle that he had been using to plow, and um, he slaughtered them. And then he took the um, plow itself, that was a wo- the wooden plow, and he cut it up, to make, turned it into a fire, and then he cooked the meat of the cattle and distributed it to the people because he did not plan to plow the fields anymore. He had now a different job to go study with Eliyahu, go follow Eliyahu. And so then he gave it to the people and then he went and followed Eliyahu Hanavi. He then followed Elijah the prophet. So then we're told that when it was time for, um, it was time for Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, to die. And so um, it was now t- it was time for Eliyahu and Navi to die. And so first Eli- Elisha had been following Eliyahu, it seems, for some time by now, and for a number of years, where Eliyahu had taught him. Um, our sage, the Midrash says that Elisha had actually been a, a disciple of Eliyahu previously, um, but was now chosen by God to always follow Eliyahu and become his chief disciple. And so Elisha was with Eliyahu. They were at Gilgal. Eliyahu tells Elisha, stay here because God asked me to go to Bethel. Elisha says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming with you. They come to Bethel and over there they meet some other prophets who tell Elisha, do you know Elijah is going to um, disappear today? And Elisha says, yes, I know. Eliyahu then tells Elisha, stay here in Bethel and um, because I have to go to Jericho. And Elisha says, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming with you to Jericho. They go to Jericho. Again, they meet some prophets that tell Elisha, do you know that Eliyahu is going to disappear today? God is taking him today. And he says, yes, I know. And uh, Eliyahu again tells Elisha, stay here in Jericho. I have to cross the Jordan. And Jericho is right next to the Jordan River. And um, Elisha says, I'm not going to leave you. Um, 50 prophets, um, or 50 students, sorry, follow Elisha and Eliyahu towards the Jordan. They stand far from far, and Elisha and Eliyahu come over to the Jordan, and Eliyahu takes his cloak and um, rolls it up and hits the water, and the water splits in two, and they both pass through. 
Um, after they pass through, Eliyahu then turns to Elisha and says, ask for anything you like before God takes me away. And Elisha says, I would like to have double your spirit. Elijah, in other words, double the godly spirit that rested on, Eli- and on Eliyahu, double the prophecy of Eliyahu, double the power of prophecy of Eliyahu. Elisha would like to have double that. So Eliel says, you've asked for something very difficult. If you see me taken away, you will get your request. If not, you will not get it. And then as they're walking, suddenly they see a fiery chariot with fiery horses that come and separate between Elisha and Eliyahu. Eliyahu goes in, and then the chariot goes, uh, starts ascending upwards, and Elisha sees it. And he calls out, uh, my father, my father, um, chariot of Israel. And after that, he does not see Eliyahu anymore. He tears his clothing in mourning. Um, and then he picks up Eliyahu's cloak that Eliyahu had left on the ground. And he goes back to the Jordan River. He takes the cloak and um, does exactly what Eliyahu had done. <laughs> he rolls it up, he hits the water and says, um, where is the God of Aye Hashem Eloke Eliyahu? Where is Hashem, the God of Eliyahu? And um, the river splits, and Elisha passes. And so now all of Eliyahu's disciples re- recognize that God's spirit has now rested on it, that had been on Eliyahu, now rested on Elisha. And so at first, Eliyahu's disciples say, let's go look for him. Maybe he fell out of the chariot and his body, he died, and his body is somewhere. Elisha says, no point looking for him. He's gone. You will never find the body. And they say, they, they, say, they beg him. So finally, Elisha relents, says, go look for him. They go look for him for three days. They don't find Eliyahu anywhere. And um, then Elisha says, did I not tell you that you would not find him? So at this point, Elisha now has become the, after Eliyahu has disappeared um, in this very strange story, which really we have to discuss in a class of its own. Um, God willing, we'll do one day a class on Eliyahu Hanavi, um, hopefully in the next few months. And so um, Elisha now becomes the spiritual leader of Israel. He's a prophet um, with many disciples, many followers, and becomes a recognized leader of Israel. So he settles in. At, the, at first, he settles in the town of Jericho, Yericho. The people of Jericho come to him and tell him, the water of Jericho is bad, bad water. It's bitter water. And so um, he says, go bring me a new jug, place salt in the jug, and they bring it to him. He goes to where the spring, where the water comes from, and he pours it into the... Um, um, and he pours the jug into the, the water into the spring and um, says, God said he has um, improved the water. The water is now good. And indeed, the water from then on was fresh water and um, good tasting water that the people were able to drink. Then the next story that we're told is actually a very strange one. Any questions before we go further? The next story we're told is a very strange, strange one. Elisha goes to Bethel, and as he's on the road, um, young boys come, young lads come, and they start making fun of him, and they call him Kereach, bold one. We're told that Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, was hairy. He had very long hair. Um, He was a Nazir, and uh, he had long hair. Elisha was bold. They called him bold one. And so he turned around and he cursed them. And after he cursed them, two bears came out of the forest and um, attacked them, um, killing 42 children. Very, very strange story, because you would think such a great sage, like Elisha, a saintly man, how can he kill children like that? Just because they made fun of him? Just because they laughed at him? So the Talmud actually asked this question in the book of Sota. The Talmud says they were not children. Although it says in the verse children, it doesn't mean they were actually children. They were adults. 
adults who are acting childish. Alicia would never punish children, but they were, they were actually adults. They were adults acting childish. And it wasn't that they made fun of Elisha calling him bold, but rather the Hebrew word for, for bold, kereach, can also mean to take something away. And they were accusing him of having taken away their, their jobs. Why? These were people who were water carriers. And these were people who had the job of bringing water to Jericho from far away, because Jericho had no good water source. And when Elisha fixed the water of Jericho, all these people were out of a job. So they came to Elisha and complained, how dare you take away our livelihood? You've taken away our jobs by fixing the water in Jericho. Now they don't need us water carriers anymore. And so Elisha curses them because he's showing us the importance. If something is good for the greater community, even if it causes you personal harm, it's still a good thing. You shouldn't stand in the way of the greater good just because whatever it is is going to cause you personal harm. It still appears like a very, very harsh punishment for a complaint. But that gives us a deeper understanding, perhaps, in this story. There's another perspective offered by um, one of the great commentators of um, Tanakh, Don Yitzchak Abarbanel. And Abarbanel explains that these were not children at all. These were actually idolatrous priests. At the time, this was a time when many Jews and the leadership of Israel, um, the king, worshipped idols, particularly the Baal idol. Elijah had fought with the idolat idolaters and idolatrous priests for much of his life. And these were a group of idolatrous priests that were making fun of Elisha publicly. And in doing so, they were causing what we call chilul Hashem, a desecration of God. Here you have idolatrous priests who are publicly making fun of the spiritual leader of Israel. And therefore, Elisha cursed them. And therefore, they were killed because of the desecration of God that they caused. By making fun of God's leader, the leader of Israel, they were bad people who were up to no good who were trying to get Israel to worship idols. And that's why they were killed. So those are two possible explanations for this very challenging story. The Talmud tells us, interestingly, at least according to one view, that there was actually when Elisha, when the bears came out from the forest and um, killed these people, there was actually a double miracle. Not only were there no bears there previously, in other words, the bears came out, they hadn't been there, uh, but they came out after Elisha's curse. But there also had been no forest previously. The forest appeared miraculously as well. In the words of the Talmud, lo dubim velo yar. No bears and no forest had been there previously, and Elisha miraculously generated both. Um, and that's actually become today a common expression in Hebrew. It's become a common expression in um, it was in Yiddish, but from there it's moved to modern Hebrew, where if you say um, there's nothing there whatsoever, nothing there at all, you use the expression lo dubim yar, no bears and no forest. So the story of Elisha now continues. And this takes place, this, to, give you, to, to give you a little background for the next story. Israel, during the time of Elisha, this is a time known as the kingdoms. After the death of King Solomon, who was David and Solomon, who had been king over Israel, the land of Israel was split into two different countries. Southern Israel was called Yehuda, or Judah. And Judah, or Judea, was... Um, ruled by the kings from the house of David. Um, it encompassed two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and it was called the nation, it was called the kingdom of Yehuda or Judea. The northern part of Israel um, was called Yisrael, the kingdom of Israel, and that included 10 tribes. The northern kingdom of Israel had various kings from various tribes, 
and it was much, much less stable. In other words, there were constant coups where um, generals or others overthrew the existing king. In the days of Elisha, the, now the southern kingdom was generally, with some exceptions, the kings were generally righteous, were good kings. The northern kingdom, almost all the kings without exception were wicked, were bad kings. So in the days of Elisha, the, um, the northern kingdom was already up to its third dynasty, the dynasty of Omri, and it was being led by Omri's son Ahav. Ahav had been king for many years. Now, for many years, the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judea, had fought with each other, had been adversarial, had fought wars with each other. But later, in the days of King Ahav, he made peace with the king of Yehuda, with the king of Judea, who was King Yehoshaphat. In fact, they even connected, as was common, I guess, throughout history, for kings to make alliances through marriage. They connected through marriage with, Ahav, with Yehoshaphat's son, Yehoram, marrying Ahav's daughter, Atalia. Now, while Ahav was a very wicked king, and an idol worshiper. He worshiped the Baal idol. He was influenced by his wicked wife, Ezebel or Jezebel. Yehoshaphat, the king, king of, Ahab was the king of Israel. Yehoshaphat, the king of Yehuda, was a very righteous and God-fearing king. And yet they were allies and good friends and related through marriage. So Ahab was a powerful king, the northern king, he captured the nearby land of Moab. Moab was a land east of the Jordan River, or really east of the Dead Sea, the mountains east of the Dead Sea. Ahab from the northern kingdom had gone and captured Moab. However, after Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against, rebelled against the northern kingdom of the kingdom of Israel. And so Ahab had a, Ahab's son, Yehoram, became king after him. And so both Yehoshaphat and Ahab both had sons by the same name, Yehoram. So um, Ahab's son, son Yehoram asks Yehoshaphat, who had been his father's good friend, the ki king of the southern kingdom of Yehuda, to join him in battle against the Moab. And so Ahab, instead of attacking Moab from the north, because Ahab was north of um, Moab, what he does is he leads his armies together with the armies of Yehuda of Judea through Yehuda, through Judea, all the way going south down to Edom. And they also bring in an alliance of the Edomites, which was a nation that lived south of the Dead Sea in what today would be the Negev Desert, um, south of um, where the, between the Dead Sea and Elah. Um, today there's the remains of Edom in Petra. Um, which is in Jordan today, south of the Dead Sea. And what they were going to do is attack Moab. They were going to travel through the desert and attack Moab from the south. Moab would be expected to be attacked from the north. Um, but instead, they were going to surprise them and attack from the south. However, what happened is as they were traveling through the desert, they went the wrong way. And they got lost in the desert. And as a result, they ran out of water. And so all the soldiers that they had from three armies, as well as their animals, were short on water. And so they were afraid what's going to happen. They were afraid that they would all die of thirst and their animals too. And, um, the, uh, and the, uh, the Moabites would hear about it, hear, find where they are, attack them when they're all dying of thirst and, over, and overcome them. And so... Yehoshaphat turns to his, the other two kings, Yehoram, the king of Israel, and the king of Edom. And he says, are there any prophets of God here that can help us? Now, Elisha had, Elisha at the time, this is after um, Ahab had brought different prophets of the Baal, of the idols that he worshipped, who told them everything will be all right, do not worry. But Yehoshaphat didn't believe them because he was a God-fearing man, didn't believe in idols. So he said, is there no God of, is there no God of, is there no prophet of God that can help us? And so indeed, Elisha 
was there with them in the camp. God had commanded Elisha to travel with these armies. So Elisha was with them. And so they called Elisha, and um, uh, they, uh, they called Elisha. And um, the, uh, when Elisha came, he said, he turns to the king of Israel, Yehoram, and he says, why'd you call me? You have plenty of Baal prophets, um, prophets of your father, of your mother, um, that, of the idols that they worship. Um, go deal with their, um, go deal with their prophets. Why are you calling me? And the king said, no, we want to hear what you have to say. So Elisha says, I would only, the only reason I'm responding is not because of you, you're an idolater, but I'm only responding because of Yehoshaphat, who is a righteous man, who is a, um, who is a saintly man, I'm only responding in his honor. Um, but in order for me to have God's spirit rest on me, Elisha says, I need you to play music. And so they brought a musician to play music for him. And then he said, then Elisha said, God says that this stream, this valley where we are right now is filled with pits. And without seeing any wind, without seeing any rain, in a moment you will suddenly see the, the, um, the pits will fill with water and the entire valley will be filled with water and you'll have more than enough water to drink. And not only that, God will easily um, give you control over the land of Moab. And indeed, that afternoon, um, I'm sorry, indeed, suddenly the, um, suddenly the um, earth, the pits filled with water and the valley filled with water, and there was more than enough for them to drink. And then the water continued flowing and it flowed towards the land of Moab. So Moab, the Moabites saw this large stream in an empty valley, what had been a dry valley, this large stream coming. And as the sun shone on it in the early afternoon, the sun gave the, the, sun gave the stream a red color. So the stream appeared red. So seeing from far, it appeared that there was a stream of blood coming. And so the Moabites said it must be that the three kings that are attacking us must have gotten into a fight with each other and turned on each other and must be killing each other. And that's why we're seeing all this blood coming towards us. And so let's go and attack them and finish them off. The Moabites came and found Israel armed and all three armies ready to attack them. And the armies overcame Moab exactly as Elisha um, had predicted. Another story. Another story of Elisha that we are told. There is a um, woman who is one of the wives of the prophets. Doesn't tell us who her husband is, but our sages say that her husband was the prophet Ovadia. And she comes to Elisha and she says, my husband has died and you know my husband was God-fearing and, um, and his creditor is coming to take my two children as slaves. Now, the Talmud gives us a little background to what happened over here. Ovadia had been the, um, Ovadia had been the chief of staff for King Ahav. Ahab was the wicked king, um, and Ovadia had been his chief of staff, the one in charge of essentially his household and uh, managing the country. Now, Ovadia had been a, was a very, very righteous man, very saintly man, um, and had been a prophet himself. But Ahab trusted him, and so Ovadia, um, and so at a certain point, Ahab's wife Izevel, Jezebel, decided to kill all the Jewish leaders, all the re Jewish religious leaders. And so um, he, and so she had all the, everyone she could find, she had them all killed. So Avadja hid 100 prophets and leaders um, in two caves. And because he had access to all the king's finances and the king trusted him, um, he was able to provide for them. However, at a certain point, he ran out of money to provide for these 100 prophets that were being hidden. And so he turned to the king's son, Yehoram, 
who was a prince at the time, and he asked Yehoram for a loan. And Yehoram asked for a guarantee for the loan. He didn't tell Yehoram what it was for, of course. Yehoram asked for a guarantee for the loan. Achav had no assets to um, pledge for the loan. And so Yehoram said, I'm going to ask for your two children. If you don't pay it back, your two children will be slaves. Avadya agreed. The prophet Avadya, he trusted in God, that God would take care of him. He was doing a mitzvah, saving the life of a hundred, the lives of a hundred um, prophets. And so, um, and so he does so, and um, he takes care of the prophets. Achav and Izevel both, Achav dies, and so um, after that, prophets were no longer being killed. The prophets go free. They're, they're able to come out. However, Avadya still owed this large amount of money. Then Avadya died. So when Avadya died, Yehoram, who has now become the king, turns to Avadya's wife, his widow, and she asks him, she asks her to return the loan. And she doesn't have any money. She has nothing. And so, because Avadya had spent all of his money on keeping these prophets alive. And so, Yehoram says, without money, I'm taking your two children as slaves. Now, of course, Judaism doesn't allow such a thing to take children as slaves in um, payment of a loan. Um, it would be a pagan thing to do. However, Yehoram was an idolater and didn't believe in Judaism and a wicked king. And uh, he, he, he made his own rules. And so Avadja's wife comes to Elisha and says, what do I do? I'm stuck. And so Elisha says, what do you have at home? Do you have anything at home? So she says, I have nothing at home. I have no food at home. My house is bare. All I have is one jug of oil. So Elisha says, this is what I'd like you to do. Go to all of your relatives. Uh, go, sorry, go to all your neighbors, everyone you can, and ask everyone for empty vessels, pots, pans, bowls, whatever you can find. Ask for all the empty vessel, vessels that you have. Fill your home with empty vessels. And then when you do that, when, you're, when you have all those, and so um, when you have those empty vessels, then what you'll do is you'll close the door, only you and your two sons will be there, and you'll start pouring the oil into the vessels. And so she does that. She um, borrows empty vessels from all of her neighbors until her house is filled with vessels. And then she begins to pour the oil on, in, into the vessel, and it just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring until she feel, fills all of the vessels. And she's out of vessels, and the oil's still flowing. She turns to her children, and she says, are there no more vessels? And they say, there's only broken ones. So she says, bring me the broken ones. And she pours the broken ones. They also hold oil until finally there's no more vessels, and then the oil stops flowing. So she comes back to Elisha. She tells him what happened, and he, Elisha tells her, go sell the oil, and it will be enough to pay all your debts and enough for you, you and your sons to live off. Then we are told another story with Elisha. Elisha would travel often to a place, he would travel around as a Jewish leader, and he would often travel to a place called Shunem. And over there, there was a um, notable woman in Shunem who would um, help him, who would invite him in. And so he would often stay by her and he would eat by her when he was there at Shunem. And so this woman says uh, to her husband, you know, this man, this is the holy man, the great prophet Elisha comes always to our house. Let us make an upstairs room for him. It will be his room. We'll place a bed, a table, a chair there um, with a lamp, and he'll be able to spend there. He'll have his own room anytime he comes. He'll have his own privacy, his own room. He'll be able to come there. And so um, they built that, and the next time Elisha came, they told him they built a separate room for him that was just dedicated just for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay. So he turns to his, Elisha turns to his servant, his um, student, Gehazi, and um, he tells his student Gehazi, call this woman, and um, he asks her, is there, you've helped me so much, built this room for me, is there anything I can do for you? Do you need any favors? As a Jewish leader, I have good political connections, maybe I could 
connect you to somebody, help you with a job, or help you with, with the king or with some other um, important person. She says, no, I'm fine. I got everything I need. So then after she leaves, Gehazi, Elisha's student, turns to Elisha and says, she has no children. She and her husband have been married for many years. They have no children. So Elisha turns to her and she uh, calls her back and says, um, at this time next year, you are going to have a child. And indeed, so it happens. The next year at that time, she has a child, exactly as Elisha had told, had told her. And so the child grows up. And then one day, the child is out with his father in the fields. And he tells his father, my head hurts. And so he takes the child home to his mother. And um, he sits with his mother. And that afternoon, the child dies. So the woman goes and she puts the dead child on the bed in Elisha's room, in the room that she had set aside for Elisha. And she closes the door. And then she calls her husband. She says, please um, send me a donkey. Um, I'd I want to go visit Elisha. Elisha at the time was at Mount Carmel. She says, I want to go visit Elisha. He says, why are you going to visit Elisha today? It's not a special day or any special occasion. Why would you be going to the great prophet Elisha? And she doesn't tell him. She says, I just need to go. So she goes to Elisha and um, she rides um, to Elisha and she comes to him at Mount Carmel. And um, when his student Gehazi sees her, um, he tells her this woman from Shunem is here. And Elisha says, go ask him, go ask her, is everything okay? And she ignores, the Gehazi runs over to her and says, everything okay? And she ignores him. She runs past him and she goes all the way to Elisha. And she says to Elisha, um, and uh, Gehazi, sorry, tries to stop her. Um, Elisha says, don't stop her. Um, something's wrong and God has not told me what's wrong. And so she said, she turns to Elisha and she said, um, did I ask you for a child? I didn't ask you for the child, but you gave me a child and now the child is dead. So Elisha turns to his servant Gehazi, to his student Gehazi, and he tells Gehazi, take my stick in your hand. Don't talk to anyone on the way. I want you to go straight to Shunem to her house. And when you get there, I want you to put my stick on the child's face. And so Gehazi goes and he does exactly that. He goes back to the home and he puts the stick on the child's face and nothing happens. Our sages say that's because Gehazi didn't follow instructions. Wherever he went, instead of not speaking to anyone, he spoke to everybody and told him, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to bring a child back to life. And because he spread the word, that's why it didn't work. So Elisha, so he comes back to Elisha. He says, nothing happened. So Elisha himself goes to Shunem and he goes to the house and he goes up to the room, that, to his room. And the, the child is on the bed. He closes the door and he prays to God. And then he goes and he lies on top of the child. He places his mouth over the child's mouth, his eyes over the child's eyes, his hands over the child's hands. And um, the, child, the child begins to warm up. And um, then he gets up and walks back and forth. And then again, he lies down on the child. And he does this seven times. And the child opens his eyes. And then he calls his student Gehazi and he says, call call the woman, call the mother, and he calls her and he says, here is your child. And um, she thanks him, and um, that child then lived, um, the child then lived on. Our sages say that child then himself later turned into a great prophet, became the prophet Chavakuk. So Elisha had now brought a child back to life, um, Elijah, his teacher, also had a very similar incident where he, he also had brought a child to life. Then the Torah gives us, sorry, the book of Kings gives us a couple other interesting stories. It tells about his students. Elisha has many, many students. Um, and at one point there was a shortage of food 
and they didn't have enough food. And one of the students went to gather um, berries in the field. He found the vine with berries, and they they cooked they cooked the berries, and then um, they realized that one of that some of the berries were poisonous berries, but they had nothing to eat, and so um, um, and so um, Elisha said, "Take some flour, throw it into the pot." They did that, and the pot was, they were able to eat it, and nothing happened. Then tells another story with Elisha and his students. Somebody came and brought 20 loaves of bread to Eli, to feed Elisha's students. Um, he had many students to feed, um, and um, he gave it to his um, servant, and he said, give it to the, um, go feed the students with it. He said, I, we have 100 students. How are you going to feed 100 students with 20 loaves of bread? And so he said, don't worry, give it to them, and there'll be more than enough. And indeed, that's what happened miraculously. Um, there was more than enough bread. Then the next story about Elisha, as you can see, we have many, many stories about Elisha. Well, the next story about Elisha is about Naaman. Naaman is the general of the army of Aram. Aram was the biblical name for what today we call Syria. So Naaman was the general of the army of Aram, and uh, very much liked by his boss, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram. And so uh, Aram constantly fought wars with Israel. Aram was just north of Israel, I guess like Syria today. They constantly fought wars. In one battle that they had, they had taken a Jewish girl captive, and she had become a slave, a maid, for Naaman's wife. Now, Naaman himself was afflicted with tzarat. Tzarat is a um, disease mentioned in the Torah when skin turns white. Um, commentaries say that there is no disease um, that matches tzarat today, but it was a common disease in biblical times. So he's afflicted with this tzarat disease. And so the Jewish girl, who's a maid for his wife, um, tells her, you know, there's a great prophet that does great miracles in um, in Israel, if you um, go have him go visit the prophet, the prophet could heal him. So Naaman hears that, he thinks it's a good idea, and so he goes and he tells his boss, the king of Aram. Now remember, Aram at the time is at war with Israel. So the king of Aram says, sure, no problem. He writes down, uh, he, writes there, he writes a letter to the king of Israel, to Jehoram, and he says, when this letter comes to you, the man who I'm, the Naaman, my general, who I'm sending with this letter, please heal him from his tzarat. And he also gave him, he took with him um, uh, silver, uh, 10 silver um, bars, as well as, um, uh, as well as um, 600 gold coins, um, as well as 10 changes of clothing, all as a gift for um, the man who can heal, uh, who can heal Naaman from his Torah. So anyway, Naaman comes um, at the head of a group of soldiers with a message for the king of Israel. They bring him to the king of Israel, um, to Yehoram, and he, Naaman, comes to the king, and he hands the letter from the king of Aram, and he reads the letter, and it says, when this man comes before you, please heal him from his Torah. When, Naaman hear, when Yehoram the king hears this, he says, do I have the power to heal somebody? How on earth can I do this? It must be that the king of Aram is looking for an excuse to attack me. He's looking for an excuse for another war. And when I fail to hear, heal his general, he's going to declare war on me. As he's, as he's sitting there trying to figure out what to do, a message is sent. He gets a messenger from the prophet Elisha. Elisha says, why are you upset? What are you worried about? Send him to me. I can help him. And so uh, Yehoram does just that. Naaman comes together with his entire entourage, um, and they come to Elisha's home. Elisha at the time was living in the capital of the northern kingdom, Shomron or Samaria. So... Um, Elisha sends as Naaman's on his way. Elisha does not let him into the house. He's outside. Elisha sends one of his students out to tell him, go bathe in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. 
When Naaman hears that, not only did Elisha not bother to see him or speak to him face to face, but he gave him, he didn't pray for him. He didn't do any magical things. He just told him, bathe in the Jordan. He said, I've bathed in all the best rivers of Damascus and of Syria. You think the Jordan will be will help me even more? But one of his servants came and said, you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to try. May as well listen. You came all the way here um, to ask the prophet to help you. You may as well try it. So he takes his entourage. They go to the Jordan. And he goes and he immerses himself in the Jordan seven times. And indeed, as he comes out, his skin is perfectly clean like a young child's skin. So now he recognizes the prophet has performed the miracle. He comes back to the prophet together with his entire entourage. And um, he tells the prophet, now the prophet invites him in. He tells the prophet, I know that God is the true God. Here I have a gift for you. And so um, Elisha says, I will not take your your gift. I refuse to take your gift. But Instead, you should worship God, reject the idols of Aram, and you should begin to worship God. And so Naaman said, indeed, I will do that. I will only recognize God. I will reject all the idol worship. However, you have to forgive me. As the general, sometimes I have to accompany the king when he goes to the idolatrous temple of Rimon, that was the main idol of Aram. Um, And I have to go with him, and when he bows down, he leans on me. So I'm bowing as well, because he's leaning on me. So forgive me, it's not intentional, but that's part of my job. Um, but otherwise, he commits to be a monotheist and believe in God, and so Elisha sees him off, um, refusing to take his gift. Now, at this point, um, his student, Gehazi, when he hears what happens, is very up- when he sees what happens, he's very upset. Elisha, as we've seen, is very poor. He has many, many students who he's struggling to help support. Um, and uh, people are bring, give him money to support his students, but it's a struggle. And here there was all this money that they could have had that could have fed their yeshiva, could have fed all those students for many years. And Elisha refused to take it. So Gehazi runs after Naaman and he catches him and he says, please, my master, the... Um, um, uh, please, um, Elisha's changed his mind, and he would like for he would like to take the gift. And Naaman's happy to give it to him, and he gives him the gift. Um, and he takes it back to his house, and he puts it in his house. He comes back to Elisha. When Elisha sees him, he says, "Where'd you go?" So uh, Gehazi says, "I didn't go anywhere." Uh, doesn't help to lie to a prophet, does it? Um, and so. Um, uh, Elisha says, I know exactly where you went because of what you did. Um, you could have made uh, sanctified God, made God, made Naaman and the Arameans impressed by God that we, we helped him and refused to take any gift. And instead you took the gift and therefore you desecrated God. Um, and so as a result, the tzarat that Naaman had is going to be on you and on your children. And indeed, Gehazi ended up having tzarat and he left Elisha. There's more stories. I know we're a little over time, but there's a couple more. Um, if, if you don't mind, I'll continue. Um, so at this point, the, um, at this point, some of the, um, some of his students say, we, we're, li- we're studying in a very, very small place. We're living in a small place. Let's go and build ourselves. We'll go to the Jordan um, and uh, we'll build ourselves a big building where we'll be able to um, live and we'll be able to study without any trouble. And um, so they go and as they're chopping wood over the Jordan, um, one person's axe drops into the Jordan and he says those, the axe that they had were not their own. They had been borrowed and he's very upset. And so it comes to Elisha and Elisha says, show me where it was. And so they show him where it was, and, um, and he throws a piece of wood into the Jordan, and the axe comes back up, um, floats on the Jordan, and he says, pick it up. Um, another story um, that is told is um, how the, um, whenever the king of Aram would attack Israel, um, Elisha would always tell the king of Israel, 
what the plans were and where they were going to attack next. So Aram asked the king of Aram asked his um, asked his asked his generals, "How come every time we try to surprise them, they're always ready for us?" They said, "Well, because there's a man of God, Elisha, who's able to." Um, there's a man of God, Elisha, who always tells them what your plans are. And so he decides he has to catch Elisha. And so um, he sends them to Dotan, where they were, where Elisha lived at the time, and where Elisha was at the time, with a large army. He says, go catch um, Elisha. And so um, Elisha's there with his students, and, they, and they hear this army coming. They're afraid. Elisha says, do not worry. The army surrounds them. And... Um, and then suddenly everybody, all the Arameans become blind and they don't know where to go. And Elisha says, um, Elisha turns to him and says, you're all blind. You can't see where you're going. Let me lead you on the right path. And so he leads them all towards the city of Shomron, Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. And they come to Shomron and suddenly their eyes, suddenly they're able to see again. And now they realize they're in the city of Shomron and um, they the king captures them all, all these uh, soldiers that had come to catch Elisha. Um, and he asks, the king asks Elisha, should I kill them? Elisha says, no, just feed them and send them back home. So he feeds them and he sends them back home. Then um, the story continues with Elisha or another story with Elisha is, um, um, uh, is that another time Aram attacks Israel this time Aram is successful in their attack in Israel, and they manage to advance all the way to the capital, to Shomron. And um, they surround the, they besiege the capital of Shomron, not letting any food brought into Shomron. And so there's a hunger within the capital of Shomron. The king of Israel, Yehoram, at the time, um, is walking near the walls to inspect the defenses when a woman comes to him and says, Your Majesty, please help me. And he says, how can I help you? What would you like me to do? I have no food. So she says, no, I need you to help me because I have a quarrel with this other woman. We had the deal as follows. We had no food to eat. So we agreed that we would eat my son today and we'll eat her son tomorrow. So we slaughtered my son and ate him. Uh, we, ate him to, we ate him the first day. And then the next day I told her it's time to slaughter your son and she refuses to kill him. When the king heard that and heard how bad the famine was, that people were killing their own children or cannibalism, leading to cannibalism, um, he didn't know what to do anymore. He was ready to surrender. And so he sent a message to, Yehosh, to Elisha. He said, save us. You, if you haven't saved us from Aram this time, I am going to um, um, have you killed. And so Elisha sends back a message do not worry. To tomorrow, at this time, one se'ah of flour will cost only a shekel. Two se'ah of barley will cost only a shekel. In other words, food will be worth almost nothing. Now there's no food in the entire city. Everyone's starving. And so the messenger comes back. Uh, so the um, and so the messenger turns to Elisha and says. Uh, who's uh, this messenger says, do you think God is going to make windows in the heavens to rain down bread for us? How on earth will that happen? And so Elisha says, because you don't believe in it, you will get to see it, but you won't get to eat it. So he comes back to the king. Meanwhile, there were four people, which were um, uh, Elisha's former student, Gehazi, who had Sarat, and his three sons, who are outside of the city of Shomron, because according to Jewish law, people with Tzarat are not allowed to be inside of a walled city. And so they were outside the city, and so they were starving to death, and they said, you know, let us go to the camp of Aram and let us surrender. They may kill us, but if we stay here, we're for sure going to die of starvation. So they go to the Aramean camp to surrender. They walk into the camp. There's no one there. They go from tent to tent. It's empty. There's not a single person there. They find lots of food, they eat, and everyone's gone. What had happened was the people of Aram heard a massive a sound like there was a massive army coming. And they thought that it must be that the king of 
Yisrael has hired other armies to come and to come and help him, and so they all fled. And so they, um, these four people who had Sarat started were eating and took things and they hid them. They took gold and silver and hid it. And then they said, why are we only taking care of ourselves? What about all the people who are starving in the city? We better go tell them. So they came back to the gate of the city and they, um, they came back to the gate and they told the people at the gate, we came to the Aramean camp. There's no one there. They're all gone. The horses are still standing there. The animals are standing there. The tents are there. They're full of stuff. There's no one there. So they came to the king. And the king, when the king heard about this, he said, you know what? They must have laid an ambush for us. They're getting tired of the siege. And so they decided to pull us out of the city. So they left the camp, hoping that we'll come to take the booty from the camp, take food in the camp. And then they'll jump out and they're hiding. They'll jump out and attack us. And so one of the servants said, you know what? Why don't you send a few people with horses and have them ride into the camp? and led them right around the camp. And they'll see if there's an ambush or not. If there's an ambush, then the ambush will come out and attack them. If they come back and say there's no ambush, then we'll know that it's okay. So the king agrees. They send these riders with horses. They go to the camp. They find no one there. Everything left exactly as these four people with Tarat had, um, had um, told them. And then they travel past the camp, and they see all the way to the Jordan. Um, and there were clothing and, and um, clothing and weapons strewn along the road that the Arameans had thrown along the road in order to lighten their load as they were running. And so um, they came back and they said, yes, it's true. Arameans are gone. We see that they had run down the road. It looks like they were fleeing from someone. And so immediately, as soon as the news spread, everybody ran to the Aramean camp to grab whatever food they can. And indeed, a sa'ah of flour costed only one shekel, two sa'ah costed only, uh, two sa'ahs of barley costed only a shekel, exactly as Elisha had said. Now there was chaos. People were starving. And um, the, and uh, people were starving. People were running for the food. The king tried to make some order. He appointed the man that had yesterday, he had sent to Elisha to bring Elisha and had come back and had not believed Elisha, he appointed him to distribute the food. But the people just ran right through him, right past him, and ran over him. He got trampled to death, and he died. Exactly as Elisha had said, he got to see it, but he did not get to live. Anyway, Elisha's life continues. Um, Elisha then goes to Aram. He comes to Aram, and to Damascus, and he, um, he uh, when he's in Damascus, the king hears that Elisha is there. The king of Aram had great respect for Elisha already, we know. And so he sent Chazal, his general, to bring a gift to Elisha. He comes to, Chazal comes to Elisha. Um, uh, Chazal, uh, uh, sorry, the king, the king of Damascus at the time, Ben-Hadad, was sick. He wanted Elisha to know if he would get better. And the Chazal comes to Elisha, and Elisha tells him, no, your king will not get better. And not only that, you will be the next king. Chazal says, I don't want to hear that. Do you think I'm going to, you think I'm a dog, that I'm going to lead a rebellion against my master? And so Elisha says, um, that's what's going to happen. Indeed, um, Ben-Hadad dies the next day, and Chazal, who had been the general, is appointed as the king of Aram. Um, meanwhile, um, uh, meanwhile, Yehoram dies, and um, his son um, Ahaziah becomes king of Israel. And Elisha goes to one day comes to the sends a message, sends one of his students with a message to one of the generals of northern Israel, whose name was Yehu ben Nimshi. And the message to Yehu, Yehu is sitting with a group of generals, and um, he calls him out. He says, I have a message from Elisha from God. And Yale comes out and he says, what's the message? He said, he pulls, out, he pulls out oil and he says, you are being anointed as king over Israel. You are to take the throne from Ahaziah. And 
Um, Yo, um, Yehu doesn't know what to do. He goes back into his meeting with the other generals. The generals say, so what did he say? What was his message from God? So Yehu doesn't want to say the message because he's afraid they'll jump on him and kill him. Uh, so Yehu, but he doesn't, maybe they'll support him. He doesn't know what to do. So he makes it like a joke. He says, oh, this guy's totally crazy. He's totally crazy. He told me that I'm going to be king instead of Ahaziah. As soon as the other generals hear that, they say, yes, we want you to be king. We'll join you um, in deposing Ahaziah. And indeed they do that. And Yehud deposes Ahaziah um, and becomes a new king over, um, becomes a new king over Israel. Um, he was a righteous king. He, he destroys all the idols um, that Ahab and his family had built. Um, destroys um, idolatrous temples and idol worship from the land of Israel. Then finally we are told, um, Elisha continued living for many, many years. Um, as we had said, he, had been, he was leader for 60 years. Um, and so then finally we're told that um, Elisha gets sick. Um, he gets sick for the final time. And um, he gets sick. And um, the king of Israel at the time is Yoash, who is the son of Yehu, um, and he hears that Elisha's sick and dying, and he comes to, he's also a righteous king, and he says, he turns to Elisha, he calls Elisha, my father, my father, um, and Elisha tells him, um, take your bow and arrow, he takes his bow and arrow, and Elisha says, um, uh, and Elisha says, open the um, window and shoot your arrows towards Aram, and he shoots his arrows, and he says, that will be a sign that you will be able to um, overcome Aram. And um, he then says, um, hit your, um, take your arrows and bang them on the ground. He bangs them on the ground three times. Elisha said, why'd you stop after three? And he says, and so he says, because you only stopped after three, you'll get to smite Aram three times, but you won't totally destroy them. So anyway, Elisha then dies, and they have a funeral for Elisha's miracles continue after his death. There is a, um, they bury Elisha. Um, one time, many, many years later, we are told, there is another man who is a false prophet, a wicked person, who is being buried in the same cemetery where Elisha is buried. And as they're carrying him, this fellow, this bad person, um, so, suddenly an army comes or a, tr a group of troops come um, from Moab to attack this group at the funeral who are burying this, per this wicked person. And they drop this individual and it just so happens they drop him right on top of Elisha's grave. And so this individual um, falls on Elisha's grave and um, immediately he gets up, though he's dead, he gets up gets up on his feet and um, because so that he not be buried next to Elisha. Our sages say he didn't, he walked a few, a little while, didn't walk very far and then dropped dead um, not too far away in the same cemetery that he wouldn't be close to Elisha. So those are, that's, those are the stories of Elisha told in Tanakh in the book of Kings. Um, it, Elisha's life carries a lot of drama with it, um, a lot of miracles. Sorry. Our sages say that Elisha had our commentaries count 18 miracles performed by Elisha. But Elisha stands in contrast to his teacher, Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah. Eliyahu Elijah as a prophet is a zealot who battles, spends much of his life battling with idolaters. He's fighting the bad guys his whole life. Elisha, though, doesn't seem to be battling idolaters most of the time, but rather is looking for ways to help others. Almost all the stories, with one or two exceptions, are about how he's helping people in different ways. He shows God's power in doing good for others. And Eliyahu and Elisha really teach us two different types of leadership. While some leaders are like Eliyahu, who may be um, fighting the bad people, um, changing the world, changing things around them, Elisha dealt with individuals, dealt with people, dealt with small, small things in this world. Um, he helped individuals who were in trouble. Leadership is not really just about changing the world. What Alicia teaches us is that leadership is really about changing individual lives, helping someone, doing something for someone. Sometimes people get very obsessed with 
who's going to lead our country? I know we're now standing before an election. And people are very concerned over who's going to lead the country. And the truth is, um, and uh, the truth is that um, regardless, God is in charge. God leads the country. So God's ultimately in charge. People are very obsessed with the, lead, the big things, the big pictures. But ultimately, that's not where we make a difference. Not with the big things. Elisha wasn't a leader only worried about the big things. He worried about the small things, helping his students when they lost a ham, when they lost an axe, helping them when they needed, helping them when they, people of Jericho, when they didn't have water, helping the Shunammite woman who didn't have children, helping people in small individual cases when someone was in trouble, helping the people of Israel in particular instances. It's about the small deeds, the small good things that were able to help people. Unfortunately, we have an entire industry that is built around telling us that our whole lives depend on a presidential election. That's all that matters. And people are so deeply invested. More than $2 billion have been spent in the last couple months to try to convince you that it really, really matters. The most important thing in your life right now is who's going to win the next presidential election. But it's not true. It's all a lie. What really matters is what you do to the people next door how you treat the people around you, what you can do to help people in our town, in our neighborhood, near us, what we can do for ourselves in our own life, the small things that we can do. That's what truly, really counts.